All right, well, we're uh, continuing with our series called Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity. Christianity. <laughs> we're trying to make Christianity more biblical, but... Uh, <laughs> Christianity. <laughs> the, the religion of Christianity is Christianity. Um, Daniel Williams is the number one follower uh, of the cr- Christianity. So, all right. So, hmm. so we're uh, continuing our series of rediscovering and restoring biblical Christianity, um, which, uh, if you see now, says GCF 19 through 23 version. I'm figuring it'll take till, till uh, 2023 to finish the series. So we have 15 emphasis, which are uh, going up there. They try, you know, the, each uh, slide has like five of them. So we are on number five, the Word of God. We spent about nine months on the first four. We'll spend at least a year on, on emphasis five. And so far we've done uh, three weeks. This is our fourth week on emphasis five. And this is actually emphasis 5DA because uh, um, this one will take at least two messages. So what we're now looking at, we looked at uh, the whole idea of rediscovering and restoring the entire Bible as the Word of God. So uh, emphasis 5 is going to actually have the word entire add to it. Because the, the, here, here's the uh, uh, basic bottom line. In Genesis chapter 3... The serpent started the reduction of God's word that continues to this day when he said, indeed has God said. And he questioned uh, what God had said, uh, how he said it, and, and if it was true. And ever since then, there's been a war going on in all the cosmos to try to reduce the fullness of Scripture. And that war has taken on many turns and many facets. I'm trying to get my uh, thing to not mess up my glasses here. So, um, and in modern times, since, the, since what was known in the mid 1800 as the modernist versus fundamentalist controversy, which gave shape to most of the expressions of Christianity in our day, and, and framed a lot of the paradigms for looking at Scripture and a lot of the, what is considered the important questions and the important emphasis and so forth. And what we're really attempting to do in terms of rediscovering and restoring biblical Christianity is none less than what Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would do. When he comes, he will lead and guide Christ's followers into all the truth. God's desire is to restore the whole word of God to the whole people of God. And in every place where indeed hath God said has raised its head uh, to restore what God has said completely and unabridged. So in the first week of this, we looked at the idea of all scripture. In the second week, we looked at Jesus' what Jesus had to say about all Scripture. And if you look at Roman numeral 5 on your outline, there's a short list of some of the most important things Jesus said. 
and uh, you can get an outline that spells out those verses and discusses them. Last week, we looked at the infallible, effectual, living Word of God. Infallible in that, in that it's without error, it's without mistake, it's completely true in all cases. And because God is living, His Word is living, and it's active, that is to say it's dynamic, it's powerful, it must always accomplish the purpose for which God sent it. It must always accomplish all the purposes for which God sent his word. And we focus particularly on two scriptures uh, that, fo- that say that, Isaiah 55, 10 through 11, and, and Hebrews 4, 12. Now today... Uh, we're going to look at a brief introductory survey of the Pentateuch with an emphasis on Genesis. And my uh, printing didn't come out right, so I'm looking at two copies and trying to stay on track with that. So, um, so I think I'll just use the original copy, even though I spilled a little water on it. It's probably a better copy overall. So... Um, This uh, message kind of morphed uh, on me as often happens as I'm putting them together and studying because I had hoped to do a brief survey of of what Christians call the Old Testament, which would be better labeled the the Hebrew Scriptures, and it proved like too much to do in one message. So then I decided to do a separate message on each of the major... sections of scriptures, not as the Hebrews looked at it. If you want to uh, delve into that a little bit, look at what we talked about uh, when we were talking about Jesus' view of scripture when we used the, uh, the word Tanakh. And, uh, you, you know, uh, the way the Hebrews looked at the scripture, uh, the law of Moses, the, the writings, and the, and the Psalms, um, the wisdom literature. So we're looking at it as, as, uh, as the church has always looked at it uh, from the earliest of, of church times after Pentecost, which is that there's four major sections. If you look at Roman numeral seven, there you'll see the, uh, on, on uh, letter B, you'll see the four major sections. One is the law. Now, jump up to letter A there, and what uh, that tells us, could somebody close the back door there a little bit? Uh, So what that tells us is that um, there are numerous names for the Pentateuch. Now, the word Pentateuch, penta is the Greek word for five, like the Pentagon is a five-sided building, Uh, and tuk is the word for library or books. Uh, so really, it just mean it literally means the Pentateuch means the five books, and the five books are sometimes called the law, because one of the central emphasis of the five books is the giving of the law to Israel, which is in Exodus chapter twenty and repeated in Deuteronomy chapter five. But after God gave the law he immediately began to give the statutes or or ordinances, which are hypothetical case laws. So if you know anything about law, you know if you study law, you study cases, 
Because what you need to understand, if you're going to understand law, is how to apply the law. And so the Bible doesn't just give us thou shall not kill. It gives us many examples of, of how to apply thou shall not kill. So from everything, if your ox gores someone, uh, to if you accidentally kill someone, or to if you kill with intent, in the very concept that we still have in Western culture, first, second, and third degree murder, um, came, comes from the biblical law. I read a very interesting article by, by a very famous lawyer arguing for why the police that, that killed uh, George, George Floyd should be charged with first degree murder, not second degree or third degree murder. They, the, only one of them, the actual policeman who put his knee on the neck and killed the guy, was charged with third degree murder initially. That's absurd because it has nothing to do with third degree murder. The, the only de reasonable debate is first or second degree murder. And so um, the, all those kind of ideas come from the biblical case laws called statutes or ordinances throughout Psalms and, and other places in the Bible. And uh, there's, there's uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. Leviticus 18 is a whole chapter on what thou shalt not commit adultery means. Because there's, uh, adultery is every illegitimate sexual act. And so the Bible spells out quite a few possible cases, although it does, could not possibly cover all cases, it covers uh, enough so that you can apply it to all situations. So that, again, the Pentateuch is sometimes called the law. It's sometimes called Torah. When you're reading Hebrew uh, literature, you'll see the word Torah, and you need to look at the context to whether they mean the first five books of Moses or whether it means the whole Hebrew scriptures that we call the Old Testament. But in most cases, Torah has to do with the first five books of the Bible. Of course, they're often called um, the books of Moses and so forth. Now, there's a word that most of us don't know, which is Sefer Torah. And Sefer Torah is a special copy of the Torah that's handwritten, and it's prepared by a person who has credentials to do so. You not... You know, no one in our church could actually make a safer Torah because you have to go through a whole pro process and be ordained to do so. And you have to have a specific title uh, in, in office uh, to do so in, in uh, Jewish thinking. Um, and the safer Torah is used in the, in the synagogues. Um, now, the reason I have conferred John 7.22, Acts 15.1 with Genesis 17 is this. There, ever since the fundamentalist modernist controversy, what started the whole controversy was a thing called the documentary hypothesis. And the documentary hypothesis started with the question, indeed, has God said? The question that they, uh, the way they posed the question is, did Moses really write the first five books of the Bible? And because they were committed to an evolution, evolutionary, anti-supernatural worldview, they could not accept 
uh, a series of writings that were inerrant and infallible and that were handed down by God because they have no room in their unbelief for such a God. And so they uh, developed this very evolutionary idea that there were four different sets of oral traditions and written documents called the, the Yahwist, the Eloist, the Deuteronomist, and the Priestly documents, uh, often signified as J-E-P-D or Y-E-P-D, depending on how you're looking at it. Uh, and this idea launched the whole modernist uh, attack on Scripture to where they began to doubt what Daniel couldn't possibly have been written when it was purported to be written because it predicts the comings of the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, and they, couldn't, they hadn't come yet. And so we can't believe that there actually is a supernatural God who pre-knows and foreordains things and can reveal them to his people uh, in, in written form. So we must conclude that it was written after the Roman Empire started. So uh, the modernist idea is at, at its basis, we're going to look at the, the modernist, uh, the negative things that, that diminish the, uh, the scriptures. Uh, that's why it, up in the, in the title, the, the, the uh, subtitle, Pursuing the Restoration and Integration of Comprehensive Hermeneutical Approaches, that's what we're doing for the next 20-some weeks or so. We're going to look at how to pursue looking at the Bible as one, uh, but then we're going to look at the negative side, and we're going to identify the various paradigms of hermeneutics, the various ways of looking at Scripture that have emerged in the last couple hundred years to reduce the Scripture. And at first, we're going to give a few weeks to the liberal ways, but because they're easier to see through, we're only going to look at those for two or three weeks because those are mostly based on evolutionary thinking and anti-supernatural thinking. Uh, they're a priority committed. If, if uh, God were to heal a blind person in front of us, they would have to find some uh, logical way of dismissing it. So if you read about the 10 plagues in Egypt, they write things like, well, maybe there was this great uh, hurricane, and, you know, <laughs> you know, and then they have to come up with some kind of plausible pseudoscientific uh, but it's just magical thinking, actually, posing as science. A lot of so-called scientific thinking when applied to the things of God is just leaps of doubt, uh, irrational leaps of doubt, based on, based on an a priority commitment that God can't, is not alive and he's not powerful and, and he doesn't do stuff. So... Um, Anyway, those are some of the titles for the Pentateuch. Uh, Mo, there's some, it's sometimes just called Moses, Jesus in Luke 24. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained everything concerning himself. Sometimes it's called the law, the law of Moses, the, the five books, uh, and so forth. Now, the major sections include that, the law or the five books of Moses, they include what I call the 12 other historical books. In most Christian writing and in most study Bibles, you'll, they'll, you'll see it called the historical books. I think it's absolutely critical that we call them the other historical books 
because the first five books of the Bible, one of the features of what the law is all about is it's an accurate history. And if you don't uh, believe it's an accurate history, then you don't believe in Jesus because you think Jesus got it wrong. Jesus quotes from both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as if it happened exactly that way. And you cannot worship a God that you think makes mistakes. So Joshua through Esther is 12 books. And it's important to understand that they are primarily, one of the main features of them is that they are historical narratives. Uh, what the liberals got right is the liberals got right that, the, that they tell a story. Most fundamentalists don't get that. They just think it contains propositional morals and, and, um, and doctrines. But it tells an unfolding story that was predestined and predetermined, and God is rolling it out for many reasons, but mostly to bring glory, glory to himself, mostly for our benefit so that we, uh, who are blind, deaf, dumb, and stupid, can have our eyes open to see the glory of who he really is. And so as the more we understand about the historical narrative, the more we have to fall down and worship like Thomas when he saw Christ after the resurrection, having doubted the, the uh, testimony of his brethren the previous week, and he is saying, I, I won't believe just because you told me so, even though you're, we're not given to lies. I love in the Chronicles of Narnia, especially the, uh, the one the movie was based on, the... Um, where, you know, the professor asked, well, uh, was, you know, was uh, Lucy given to lying before? <laughs> you know, and uh, so who should you believe? Uh, so um, that's an important thing in, in considering our faith. But in any case, uh, a feature of the law of Moses is that it also deals with historical narrative, as we're going to see later today. Then uh, next, there's the wisdom or t poetry books, which are five. And so we'll do at least one week uh, as an introduction to those. And then there's the prophets. Now, we, uh, you could say 4A and 4B, the major prophets, and 4B, the 12 minor prophets. So, or you, so you could say, well, there's five sections. You could label the major prophets a section in itself and the minor prophets a I choose to put the prophets together and, and kind of do a sub-A and sub-B. Now, the five major prophets is a little bit tricky, so keep in mind that there are four major prophets who wrote five books. Lamentations is considered a major prophet, even though it's only five chapters. So somebody, some people think the way you keep straight in your mind a major prophet or a minor prophet is how long the book is, because at least uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah are longer books than the 12 minor prophets. However, it doesn't work because Daniel is actually shorter than Hosea, and I think Zephaniah, a couple of the, couple of the minor prophets. Zechariah, did it? Or, um, yeah, Zechariah. And uh, 
um, of course, Lamentations is only five chapters, and Lamentations could be considered a, poet, a poetry book because it's mostly Hebrew poetry and it has the, uh, uh, the couplets and so forth. I was so glad that Sam chose to have our uh, call to worship reading be from Lamentations 3. That has always been one of my favorites, especially uh, it's good for a, a man to bear the yoke in his youth. I really encourage you to consider that when you're 65 years old, you can't work as hard. Once you begin to have children and so forth, you can't, you can't give as much time to studying God. Enjoy being single and enjoy uh, those years of marriage before the kids come because you will never again have as much time to draw near to God, ever. So uh, one of the things that you should start to pay attention to when you're four or five or six years old is you're running out of time. <laughs> and uh, and uh, time is very short. And eventually you'll have so many responsibilities that the amount of time you have to study. And that's, you know, some people would consider this nutty, but I still reap good fruit from it in some, in some ways. Uh, but I, I remember many a night studying on my knees in college so that I wouldn't fall asleep so I could study longer and more because uh, the pain in my knees would help me stay awake. And uh, so because I knew I was running out of time. I was going to get married, and eventually I was going to have kids. And once I had kids, there's never any time. <laughs> uh, most parents of little kids know that's the, that's the truth. Um, all right. Now, uh, a, a kind of a major verse for us in this whole section is 2 Timothy 2.15, that in the New King James reads, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, unfortunately, uh, in many circles, of, uh, in, after the modernist fundamentalist controversy started, mostly the fundamentalist or conservative side, instead of answering uh, the doubts about Scripture that were being raised in the same way the ancients did and the early church did, they chose to take more the, the, the approach that the Pharisees took. And so as such, uh, they embraced a kind of thinking that's known as dispensationalism. Now, nobody's a pure dispensationalist anymore, except maybe Charles Ryrie, who, lest I looked, was nearing 100 years old or something and was still alive in, at da in Dallas, uh, great, the great professor at Dallas Theological Cemetery. Um, but uh, so... Uh, this, the whole dispensational approach chops up the word of God in such a way that you never put it back together. And so you, uh, uh, I, you know, I've read a number of, of, of surveys of the Old Testament by, um, you know, your Southern Baptist types or fundamentalist types, and their emphasis is the discontinuity between the covenants. Or Galatians 3 makes it clear that there's a continuity between the covenants. A, because they're both the word of the same God. And B, 
They're both the unfolding of his one eternal, historical, predetermined purpose. And C, you cannot add or subtract provisions from a covenant uh, once you make the covenant. Uh, When you're married one year or 38 years, you can't say, oh, about those vows, I really wasn't serious about certain ones. Uh, I was just, you were serious about that? You know, uh, that doesn't work very well. Um, you know, if I borrow $100 from Byron and I told him I'll pay him back in two weeks, uh, he doesn't want to hear after two weeks, oh, I, I was kind of thinking that, you know, with the Lord, he, a day is like a thousand years. And, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I really will pay you back eventually. And, uh, but it might be more like 2,000 years. <laughs> you know, I'm a post-millennial, so we got plenty of time, don't we? <laughs> so, uh you can't, you can't alter the covenant like that. Every covenant, as, as the eight major covenants unfold, they're all an outworking of the first covenant mentioned in Hebrews 13, 20, that's, that was made before God created the time-space continuum. In eternity, uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had a, a covenant called the eternal covenant, which is chronologically the first covenant in the Bible, and is in play already in Genesis 1 when God says to himself, let us make man in our image. That's because he's working out the provisions of the eternal covenant. And so there's actually a continuity between all the covenants, and that is what we've got to discover and put back together if we're going to think biblically. Now, so flip over to the back side of the page, and we want to look at the fact that both Genesis and the Pentateuch are foundational. Now, I'm kind of mostly doing Genesis today, but some of the things apply to to uh, that apply to Genesis apply to the Pentateuch, such that as Moses wrote them. Now, one of the, people will say, "Well, come on." And they, you know, they follow all these modern ideas that, that the scripture evolved. And I'm not opposed to the fact that there were oral traditions and that Moses knew a history that was being passed down uh, through the Yahwist line that went, uh, you know, through such great figures as, as of course, Abraham and Seth and uh, Methuselah and Noah and, and all, you know, all... From, from Adam all the way to, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc., all the way in that certain parts of the history were, were taught and recited because as Stephen so brilliantly taught us this morning, there's a hierarchical and a, and a, a generational aspect to all covenants. All, all covenants have, um, what's the word that I use that he used? Uh, secession, you know, in other words, God is always making provision to pass the covenant down generationally. That's why the most important thing about being a Christian is to become progressively conformed to the image of Christ because every seed brings forth fruit after its own kind 
and godly Christians bear fruit. Okay, uh, you can't uh, consider, uh, you know, if, if you're married and you're having trouble having children, uh, if you don't want to have any more children, let's say you had a 93 already or, or even eight or so, you know, eight's a good number, uh, the number of new beginnings, you, you might say, uh, well, we, you know, that's enough. We don't want to have any more kids. To do that, if you're healthy, you have to do, do something about that. Um, healthy bodies reproduce. And so, in likewise, uh, you know, is that from Genesis 1, one of the things we're, gonna t- we're trying to t- focus on today is that all the major themes of the Bible start in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And all of them are derived from, from the historical narrative of what actually happened in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And one of those uh, major principles is fruit-bearing. Every seed brings forth fruit after its own kind. Now, in, in speaking of that principle, Jesus actually said to the Pharisees, Woe are you! Because you go all over the Roman Empire to make one proselyte, and when you do, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are yourself. Uh, The reason we look very heavily in terms of leadership and leadership teams and so forth, at first of all, the quality of the marriage, and secondly, the quality of the children and, and all that, is because every seed brings forth fruit after its own kind. You can tell the reality of where you are in Christ by uh, the character, and the character bears fruit after itself. That's so huge. Um, you know, when I'm interested in uh, uh, raising someone up uh, in terms of the things of the Lord, I actually uh, have lunch with their wife, <laughs> and that's how I know, like, okay, this guy's, uh, you know, we need to make an elder out of this guy eventually. So, uh, let's, let's get into this a little bit. Um, so, um, in the English Bible, the names of the first five books of the Bible come from their Greek names. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are all uh, derived from Greek words. Deuteros is uh, second, or two, namas, the law, second giving of the law. And it's not just because Deuteronomy 5 repeats Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments word for word, but there's much more of the second giving of the law contained in Deuteronomy. Okay, so let's look at um, uh, seven statements about uh, Genesis that that also apply to the Pentateuch. First of all, the critical and determinative role of history. We're going to look at uh, more next week than this week a number of literary features of the Pentateuch. We've already looked at one in particular, the statutes and the ordinances that are hypothetical case laws. 
But a second one that we've already touched on is that it's historical narrative. It's really history. Now, that's super important because we uh, have the only faith of all the great world religions. We're the only one that the history is important. That's why there's such a great emphasis by unbelievers on taking the leap of doubt to believe evolution. Now, as you begin to understand the things of God, you'll actually see I was brainwashed in evolution every day of my life. I went to a liberal Roman Catholic schools up through third grade, and after that I went to um, humanist, secular, secular humanistic uh, public education schools, and I received the religion of the state. And so it never occurred to me that Adam and Eve wasn't just a fable. Never thought of it that way. Uh, I believed in cavemen. I read about cavemen on the back of my Wheaties box of cereal. Like I totally believed in cavemen in thousands and thousands and billions of years and, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I never considered, for instance, that Jesus' very first miracle was he made the best wine out of water. Now, the best wine is already many years old, the day that he created it. So, you know, one of the things that, uh, that even Christians, because we're so brainwashed and we're thoroughly uh, demonically uh, controlled by a priori assumptions that there's nothing spiritual or supernatural. So we believe if things have an apparent age, then they must be old. But Adam was created as a mature man. Most theologians believe he was about 30 years old in terms of his development the moment he was created. And there are all kinds of processes in the universe that, that necessitate that the earth be less than 10,000 years old. But there are all kinds of things in the earth and the, in our solar system and our galaxy and the galaxies that, that our galaxy are part of uh, that must be billions of years old. And that's no problem to God because many of the stars and so forth that are even being created today are already billions of years old the day they're created. And the universe is still rolling out because God didn't say, let there be so much light and stop. He said, let there be light. And that command is still enough. And there are still universes rolling out and they are billions of years old the second they're created. And even scientists know that so many processes in the, in the galaxies that we can't really reach that well, that, but that we know exist, uh, there's age to them. The moment they are formed. Just like the wine at the wedding of Cana was probably already 12 to 20 years old the second it was created. Now, our faith rests on history, uh, 
because God is, is, has created, in the, he created the time-space continuum, so time started at a certain point in time. But God lives outside and above time in a realm called eternity that isn't just the long, long, long time. You know, like the song, The Amazing Grace, which I love the song, but the theology of the, of the stanza that goes, when we've been there 10,000 years is bad theology because we'll just be in a realm that is. And it's, it's, it's more than billions and billions of years. It just is. And so one of the hard things for, because of our natural mindedness, which is a, a product of our fallenness, is that we have to understand that there, that there is a realm called eternity. And the only place you can know God is when the time-space continuum intersects eternity, and the only place that ever happens is right this moment. That's why Matthew 6.33 says, uh, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness... And then verse 40, and all these things will be added to you. And then verse 34, in the King James, sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. But the uh, modern translations say uh, each day has enough concern of its own or something like that. The, the point is, is that uh, you, you can't fellowship God in the future. Quit worrying about the future. Do what you're called to obediently do today. And you'll be, and the future will take care of itself. We know that God has a plan. Jeremiah twenty nine tells us, and that plan is unfolding to be better than we could ever think or imagine. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man all the great things that God has prepared you for and called you to. And it's amazing how much negativity exists in so many Christians' minds and hearts and worries about the future. But whenever you're anxious or worried, you're not thinking right. Never. If you have trouble sleeping at night, you've got a problem with what, how you're relating to God. God is never worried or anxious, ever. Because he has predetermined the outcome from the beginning. And history is important because it lays out. So one of the things you have to understand is if you went to uh, anything but the best of Christian schools, uh, generally, we've been brainwashed in a lot of very humanistic thinking that we've accepted uncritically. So, for instance, I have a master's degree in history from Bowling Green State University. And I was taught that the father of history is a guy named Herodotus. And Herodotus is called the father of history because he wrote uh, about the Greco-Persian Wars. And in so doing, he was one of the first to interview uh, witnesses and then to take notes on their interviews and compile the interviews, much like Luke clearly tells us that he did in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. But uh, he's there later criticized because 
Herodotus took the, the testimonies of the eyewitness at face value and didn't critically uh, uh, question them. He didn't impeach the witnesses as we, the, the whole basis of an adversarial law system comes from the book of Proverbs and was practiced by the Hebrews long before the, the Greeks and the Romans developed it. And it's, it says the first to plead his case seems just until another examines it. That's the point of cross-examination. And therefore, the, the humanist will actually claim that Thucydides, uh, it, they call him the father of scientific history because they neither know, understand history nor science. First of all, there's nothing scientific about uh, there, you know, when you study epistemology, you understand there's different kinds of knowledge and there's different kinds of ways of knowing knowledge. And scientific knowledge has to do with present processes that we can hypothesize about and that we can test and verify. What Thucydides was, is, was the father of critical history or um, you know, cross-examined history because he doubted the witnesses and, and uh, tested one witness against another and against archaeological evidence and so forth and began to take the first steps toward doing history like modern people would do history. But Moses did all of that and more, more than uh, 1,500 years before Thucydides was born. And the Hebrews were the first people to have a valid view of history. Now, their view of history is different from a modern view because in all history, you select out of your worldview and out of your values what is important, questions to be asked and so forth. So what the, you know, I don't care to watch CNN or Fox or, or NS, MSNBC or whatever. Any, I don't like any of them because I don't even like the questions they're asking. And it's amazing, I, I, I actually did watch some news for the first time in maybe a decade or so, um, when, you know, all this uh, George Floyd was started, and it's like I could predict exactly what CNN would say and Fox would say. Uh, they have two, you know, at different axes to grind, and, uh, and they totally blind their uh, understanding to exactly what they're trying to sell you. And... Uh, the fact they don't let the facts get in the way uh, of their worldview, and so a biblical view of history is is uh, very different because we're not as interested in Marco Polo bringing spaghetti back. I am, but uh, from, <laughs> from China. But uh, you know, to me, Marco Polo is one of the great. Uh, you know, guys of all history, because he brought back spaghetti noodles from China. But, uh, and modern civilization began at that point, as far as I'm, no, I'm just kidding. But, uh, um, you know, the truth is, what the Bible gives us is the unfolding of God's predetermined eternal covenant and eternal decree and plan. And it's focused on God's priorities, which is to have a people for himself, that would eventually accurately represent him uh, 
and there are, were many predetermined failures written into the story on the way there so that man, in the end, would be totally humbled. Because the first thing you need to admit if you're going to be a Christian is you really are a mess. And you're a mess for all sorts of selfish, sinful, prideful, arrogant, self-seeking reasons. You know, one of the things that I love when I'm first getting to know uh, people, especially in our Christian culture, is they will give you two, five, seven hours of like their version of themselves, which isn't as bad as is what you know it really is. <laughs> and uh, you know you're really starting to get somewhere when they begin to pull down all the self-defense mechanisms and say, yeah, I'm a real mess. Now we're getting somewhere. Because <laughs> uh, because until we kind of acknowledge our, you know, like the uh, Psalms, I acknowledge my sin to thee, I did not hide my iniquity. He who confesses and forsakes his sins will prosper. But who conceals his sin will have all kind of troubles. If we say that we have no sin, we're a liar. I love to hear people's stories about themselves, and at the end I just go, I love you, you liar. <laughs> and uh, so uh, it's amazing. Uh, I, I love Ray Nethery's uh, little saying that he always goes, he goes, cheer up. You're much worse off than you think, or something like that. It's much worse than you think. All right. Uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy uh, begins to shape that drama, uh, and they begin to unfold his design, his purpose, and his inevitable historical progression. Uh, the biblical view of history is linear. Uh, it's not cyclical, and it's not chaotic. We'll probably, maybe next week, we'll talk about views of history, but it's linear from God's point of view, not what human beings would call linear. A lot of modern history has a lot of faith in man and his science and technology, so thinks that we're making a lot of progress, but we can use technology to, make, uh, to cure cancer or to make atom bombs. Uh, scientific progress is, is not necessarily a good thing. It depends without changing the heart of man. There, you, you can't pass laws and, and create better governments and all that to bring about any good. Uh, you, that has to be a much more deep, fundamental, grassroots transformation. Um, Genesis is especially crucial in 10 progressive waves of revelation, each that begin with the phrase, these are the generations of. Now, the New American Standard, which is normally a very good translation, usually better than most uh, what you call literal equivalence uh, translations, than uh, both, both English Standard and King James and New King James and Young's Literal and the Geneva Bible are all literal equivalence translations, but uh, New American Standards uh, says over and over, these are the accounts. And that's okay because they are historical narratives, they are accounts, but they're accounts of, uh, that, are, that are 
firm on generations. And so one of the things, you, if you study, if you go to any modernist humanist school, and if you study any modernist humanist views of education or psychology or uh, something like that, you'll deal a lot with the question, are things more environment or hereditary? Uh, in the Bible, heredity is foundational and determinative of so many things, and the, the way of salvation is to bring a new heredity. You're no longer Robbie Johnson, born to Daryl, is it? And, uh, and, and uh, I forgot your mom's name. What? Christy? But now you're, uh, you know, Robbie Johnson, reborn in Christ. And so you have a whole new heredity. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, new things. And it, and it may be... Uh, okay to understand some factors of your parents and your environment, your upbringing, that, that they contributed to who you are, but the way out is to, is the, is to become a new creation with a new uh, lineage. And I'm not a son or daughter of so-and-so. I'm a son or daughter of the king, the creator. Now, so just to be perfectly clear, the five books of Moses are the most important in the Hebrew Scriptures. All the other three sections of the Old Testament take their direction and their interpretations from Moses. Uh, and all proper understanding the New Testament is dependent on and derived from rightly understanding the Pentateuch, and especially the critical role of Genesis. All major themes of the Bible found, find their fountainhead in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That is, they trace and are to and are derived from all of Genesis, but especially the first three chapters. They are all further developed in, in the further developed in the remainder of the of the law of Moses uh, or the or the books of Moses. Now uh, I have there ten major biblical themes. We don't have. We're not going to get into any of those today. Hopefully, we'll perhaps we'll pick that up next week because we're going to do at least. Uh, if you notice at the title, I have um, uh, emphasis five D small A. It, uh, there will probably be small B and small C, but uh, you can cheat ahead if you want and be more prepared for next week. Uh, about 10 of my list there, uh, of, of the 10 I list there, there's considerable six or seven overlap with the book we had as the second book of the year a couple years back, which was called The Heart of the Old Testament by Youngblood. Uh, was it Robert Youngblood? I forget his first name. Um, also, you can cheat ahead. I gave you uh, the Catherine Weiss uh, Favorite Genesis for Beginners books. I, uh, one of the nice things about being married to Catherine is I always enjoy whatever book she's reading at the time. Uh, I usually read snippets of it and skim it. I'm not as good a reader as she is, nor do I know as much biblical studies or theology as she does. Um, however, uh, those, are, th those are four of... of uh, Catherine's favorite books to get started understanding the book of Genesis listed there. And next week, we'll get into uh, the 10 major biblical themes that I have, have listed there and go on to more about Genesis and more about the Pentateuch. Uh, so let's have our uh, 
Let's have our guys who are leading our communion come and do that.